Hey guys, welcome back to Open to Truth. My name's Tony. And on this week's episode, Clint and I had a conversation with Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott. She's an archeologist, a real life archeologist, first one I'd ever met. And she specializes in home dwellings. So not so much temples and palaces and all of that, but like the everyday life of ancient people. Uh, so we had a fascinating conversation about that and about how that informs how we read the Bible and our relationship to scripture. Um, and I just wanted to give you a, a quick heads up. Listen, I made a blunder. I accidentally recorded two copies of Clint's mic and zero copies of my mic. So anything I say in this episode, the audio will be captured from either the camera microphone or Clint's microphone bumped up a ton. Anyway, it's not going to sound good when I speak, but thankfully I don't do very much talking in this episode. It's most, mostly Cynthia and Clint and they sound great. So I um, hope you can forgive me for that, put up with that and uh, enjoy the conversation. Well, welcome back to Open to Truth, a podcast all about exploring big ideas and discovering truth together. My name's Clint. Hi, I'm Tony. And we have a special guest today. We're doing again, um, kind of this uh, Google Meet version of Open to Truth. Uh, we have Dr. Cynthia Schaefer Elliott. She's the Associate Dean and Associate Professor at William Jessup University. And she is a real life archaeologist. I've never met one before. You're the first one I've ever met. So I'm so stoked. Yeah, welcome to the podcast, Cynthia. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So one thing we like to start with typically are people's stories. And I would just love for you to share with us and our audience, what what is your story? Like what drew you to archaeology? Was there a person, an experience? an idea, maybe like some course in college. A movie, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> that that drew you in. Why did you decide to pursue it? You know, it never really crossed my mind until I went to college. Um, I always loved history, in particular ancient history, and even more particular history of ancient Israel. And I loved it. And I was actually good at history. I was never a good student. So um, I, when I found something that I loved, I just dove right in. And it was with, and I grew up in a Christian home. And um, and you know, our third place was our church. So we were always <laughs> at church. And um, I, but I loved it though. And so when I went away to college, I went to a small private liberal arts college in Northern California, where we were required to take, um, you know, biblical studies and theology classes as part of our general ed. And I remember my very first semester being in an introduction to, oh, I'm sorry, um, introduction to Old Testament class. And, um, and, I just remember sitting there thinking like, oh my goodness, I really love this. And I re was remembering a lot of stuff from, you know, as a kid and it just really, I just really thought that was so cool. And so, and I loved it and I just wanted to keep studying it. So I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, the same professor that taught that class, um, he did a class also on biblical backgrounds, which was all about the culture and customs and manners of the biblical world. And I just really loved that. And then that same professor also did study tours to Israel. And I went as um, a sophomore in college and we did a dig for a day at the caves of Maresha. And we found nothing, <laughs> we found maybe some pigeon bones, but it was so strange wow. because I didn't care. 
I, I say I didn't find anything, but I found a passion and I loved it. And uh, I think because to me, archaeology was history that you could see and that you could touch. Mm -hmm. It was, um, it was just, it seemed more real to me in a way. And there's lots of different types of archaeologies, but you know, the one that really resonated with me was um, kind of giving more of the historical and cultural background of whatever history you're studying. And so it was on that trip where I just, I was my first trip to Israel and I fell in love with it, my first excavation and I fell in love with it. And so I've been pursuing it ever since. Yeah. I think that's a common experience. Like when I went to seminary, had the Old Testament survey class. Oh, yeah. Now I, ne I never went on a dig. But even in the book, I'm looking at at, le at least pictures of yeah. these steles and different like monument, and this is how we we can corroborate. Like here's here's David in yeah. the in the historical archaeological record, and I thought that was really yeah, well, moving. It brings it to life, you know. Yeah. that's what I saw. Right. Like my, I was telling Clint the other week, one of my favorite classes in my undergrad was just an ancient history class that was like stories that this guy came in and told the story mm. of humanity from beginning through, I don't know, 1500 or something like that. But you just talk for like three hours. It's like fantastic. It brought, brought yeah. all of that to life, especially scripture. So. That you're not really getting, if I were just to crack open my Bible, let's say, and just start reading through Kings. Right. You know, I'm missing so much of all this stuff. Yeah. Well, so as a, you're a professional archaeologist, what's one of the biggest misconceptions of that field? I like to pick people's brains about kind of insider knowledge. I'm guessing it's not like Indiana Jones and <laughs> explosive adventures. adventures you're, you're, you're getting, getting all, all these treasures. treasures. What, what does an archaeologist really do? Like that. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give us a snapshot and do it? Um, you know, like just like every discipline, there is lots of inside, you know, insider knowledge, I guess you could say. Um, but I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that people think archaeology is just like black and white, mm -hmm. that there's, there's no gray. And that's so not true. I mean, archaeology is just as subject to interpretation as any as biblical study is because I do both biblical studies and archaeology and um, you know biblical studies is all about interpretation and all the tools you use for interpretation um, and people think that archaeology is just well it is what it is and it's like no actually it's not because you can have you know let's say I'm on my site and we're and me and my other staff members are looking at whatever it is we found. And maybe there's four of us, but there's going to be 12 different opinions. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's not black and white. A lot of the times, most of the time, it's just as subject to interpretation as anything else is. And once you get into reading or being part of that world, even such a small world like mine, where we're focusing on the archaeology of ancient Israel and Judah and its neighbors, um, you know, it's it, there's a lot of discussion about everything. There's not a con really a consensus on anything. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay, and that's the way scholarship's supposed to be, where we're constantly 
looking and constantly studying and reevaluating things after we learn you know, more information as we get more tools that are helpful, more technology. So um, it's not as uh, clear cut as I think most people like to think it is because you hear people say that all the time. Well, the biblical, you know, archaeologists found this and they found this. So that means this. It's like, right. Well, yeah. well actually. <laughs> so that's I love that you use the word interpretation. Um, I'm wondering, are there any basic principles of interpretation that every archaeologist would know. I'm just thinking through, you know, my background is, is biblical interpretation, and one of the rules is, like, stick to the genre that it's supposed to be, like, read it as the genre that it's supposed to be, you know, right. start there. Yeah, so would, would there be anything similar in the realm of archaeology? How do you even start interpreting? Right. Well, um, there's lots of different types of archaeology. So just like within biblical studies, we have you know, you could say we have, the way I say it to my students is we have a, a, a toolbox, right? And you've got lots of different criticism, which criticisms, which are like tools in the toolbox. And um, just like you would say in the way I say to my students, you know, the form of a passage determines, helps determine the function of a passage. Mm -hmm. The same with archaeology in that where you're excavating, the space that you're excavating is really important because, um, so one of the things that I like is what we call spatial analysis. And so it's not just about what you find, it's also about where you find it and where that thing is found in relationship to other things. Right. So for instance, if you're excavating a house, you know, and that architecture is really important, you're not gonna expect to find monumental type things in a in a domestic environment um, if you do then wow there's something really strange going on <laughs> but um but then also you know looking at okay i'm in this space in this house and i'm i find an oven okay that's great an oven where is that oven located in the house um, where is it in relationship to the other finds that we've excavated or have found in that same space? Um, what's the distance between them, you know, and, and how do those things that we find help us interpret what happened in that space? Yeah. Wow. That's just one example. That's super intriguing. So, so along those lines in household archeology, span What's one of the more surprising things that you found out? Because I'm thinking now, when I've read scripture, I'm I just I feel like I'm not seeing a lot of details about the everyday life of people in these stories. And of course, it's spanning hundreds or thousands of years or whatever. Um, so I'm sure the everyday life of someone in a Genesis story would be far different from, you know, someone in Kings, let's say. Uh, but yeah, anything surprising that you've learned? Like, what what was the everyday life of someone in one of those households really like? Yeah, and I think um, everyday life is when you're wanting to look at, you know, everyday life. It's when archaeology is probably more helpful than text, whether it's a biblical text or other ancient Near Eastern texts, because texts are written by elite urban males for the most part you know and 
their motivation for writing is very different than what people in a society where everyone is is literate. Um, you know, take for instance today, where you know we're all writing little things every day for the whole world to see. You know, that's very different than their world. So if you think about when people are writing, when men, elite urban men, are writing texts, and that their motivation for writing is monumental motivation. You're documenting the kings, the priests, the battles, um, the temples, the palaces, all these monumental places of prestige, as um, some scholars have called it. And um, that rarely reflects daily life. So when we want to look at daily life, we have to shift our attention from the monumental to the everyday, to the mundane. And that would be the home. That's the stage where daily life still occurs, you know, for most of us, at least, especially during <laughs> the quarantine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but where, you know, if we really want to understand the, the cultural war and social world of ancient Israel and Judah during, especially, let's say, the Iron Age, uh, which, if your listeners aren't familiar with that, it's roughly from 1200 BCE to 586 BCE. And that's roughly the time period that most of the Old Testament events um, occurred in. Uh, that is reflected in the Hebrew Bible is normally that time period. I mean, it, give or take, you know, some uh, beginning and the end. But um, so if you're thinking about like, okay, well, what did they do? How did they live? What did their houses look like? Um, you know, what did they cook? How did they, what did they, how did they produce things? You know, what kind of animals did they raise? What kind of crops did they grow? We can use the biblical text, but that's not the point of the text. The point of the text isn't to provide, you know, recipes on a day about daily life. It's not supposed, it's not intended to give a daily account of your average ancient Israelite man, woman, or child. It's all about the monumental. And if something about daily life is part of the story, part of the setting of the narrative, then yeah, you get glimpses of it. So we want to use the biblical text, but we also want to use everything else at our disposal, which would include other ancient Near Eastern texts, in particular, um, I'm thinking of like if you're thinking of food, which is something mm -hmm. I study a lot of um, the Yale Babylonian um, culinary recipes that, um, you know, those are, again, elite context, but we can still get a really good idea of some of the recipes that they wow. had, most of which don't sound very appetizing to me, <laughs> <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. What did you call um, that? The Yale Babylon recipes yeah so it's a collection of babylonian tablets that are recipes from uh the from babylon and that are housed in at the university of, at yale university wow. and um i used them quite a bit for my doctoral dissertation and i'm really pleased to see that they've become um they're more out there now um, on social media and stuff and you can have more access to them um, but yeah, they're fascinating. They talk about, you know, lots of different types of breads and cheeses and stews and, um, it's, it's great stuff. Um, but, and it gives us, even though it's in Babylon, you know, it's still part of that ancient Near Eastern world that Israel was a part of. 
Yeah. And even though it's elite context, it could still give us a glimpse into what kind of ingredients were accessible, what kind of meals they were preparing, that things were not as kind of static as, as they could have been. Um, maybe very different from your app for your average person, but still, um, you know, not too bad. So how I'm kind of wondering this and my apologies if it's not in your, the iron one, iron two special specialty, but how similar would the everyday life of someone in 600 BC be to someone in the time of Jesus? Cause I'm, I'm reading some of these stories and like, <laughs> I don't know, Jesus is out by the Mount of Olives or something and a whole crowd comes. Well, what were they doing all the, do they work during yeah. the day? And how do all these, how do they have all this free time to be traveling around the countryside? And yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. I think, I think there would have been a lot of similarities in that, you know, this is um, your average ancient Israelite would have been, what we call agro pastoralists. So they would have been farmers, you know, they would have been um, growing crops and raising herds. But by the time you get into Jesus's time, um, things are more urban than they would have been during the Iron Age. You also have a lot more specialization in trade during Jesus's time. Not that you didn't have that in the Iron Age, but, you know, that's a big difference between you know, the 8th century BCE and the 1st century, you know, CE or AD. Um, And of course, a lot happens between those two time periods. You've got, you know, the exile and you've got the the Greeks and Hellenization and you've got the Romans. So a lot of things have changed by that time. One of the biggest changes that I like to emphasize in um, my archaeology in the New Testament classes with Hellenism, this this rise of leisure, you know, activities hmm. of leisure like bathhouses and gymnasium and um, libraries, and of course more people being literate and theaters and and you know things like that, which you don't really have in the Iron Age, but you do have during Jesus's time. Uh, have, have there been any, um, and I'm sorry if this is a question you're planning on asking, okay. but how has, uh, and this might be too broad of a question, but how has your experience in archaeology informed the way you approach scripture? Has it, has it changed how you relate to it or um, how you see it as a collection of documents? I mean, do you see the Bible the way as a collection of ancient texts like any other that you would find or... How has it changed your relationship with scripture? Yeah, I think it would have to, you know, affect it. Um, You know, I I gave a talk once to a a seminary and somebody asked a similar question and um, about archaeology and like, you know, biblical studies. And and um, and I said something then that when I said it, I didn't I kind of had that aha moment as I said it. (laughs) Um, And it still rings true. I think um, biblical studies and archaeology have um, have really helped me maintain, like, keep my faith. Wow! Right, because I'm such a I'm such a head person um, that I have all these questions, and I love questions. I'm I'm 
I'm one of those people that's like, no, don't be afraid to ask questions. Actually, questions are so good. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And that seems to happen a lot within uh, in religious communities, but in particular um, Protestant evangelical communities where you're not encouraged to ask questions. In fact, you may be outright discouraged from it. Right. And that was never my the case with me. However, um, I think it was the questions and it was the research and it was the digging and it was the, you know, getting into the text that kept me there. Hmm. I think, uh, I don't know where it would be otherwise. Um, I'm, um, I'm such a head person that I, my head and heart are very much connected. Um, so for me, you know, people get a little uneasy when I ask tough questions and especially in the classroom, you know, when you have students who are really unfamiliar with, you know, proper biblical studies, with how archaeology can and can't help us with the biblical text. Um, because most of the time students, people in general, will see archaeology as only a way to they only see it as like a, a almost like a weapon huh. to prove or disprove the Bible yeah. um, on either side. And I think any proper biblical scholar and archaeologist don't approach it that way. They don't approach it as a weapon. They approach it as a tool, but not a weapon. And even that um, that posture of using archaeology as a weapon to prove something about the Bible. I think is bringing to the table some assumptions about what the Bible even is and what, I don't know, theological oomph you're getting to your whole view of scripture and everything. Right. Um, but I'm kind of curious. So what, are there any, like, just tell us a story, like a particular experience. Did you find something in the ground one time that really brought something to life or other than pigeon bones right <laughs> have you found something beyond pigeon bones yeah <laughs> that's really funny in fact i have i'm going to use this as a little illustration oh perfect it's been there the whole time <laughs> <laughs> so um you know you always find you're always hoping for the big stuff you know like big inscriptions you know, I'd be really happy if I found, you know, another collection of scrolls, like the yeah. Dead Scrolls, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, the Schaefer so Elliott great, scrolls. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, and people always ask, oh, so you found the Ark of the Covenant. Right. <laughs> what about Noah's Ark? I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> Those are just some of the, you know, the oldest questions related to archaeology and the Bible ever. And I get it. People are interested in those things, but those are pretty sensational things. Yeah. And I have found some pretty cool things, but honestly, the things that get me every time is something like this. I'll just explain what this is. This is a broken piece of a handle from a jug and it's a small one, but um, you can see where the body was. And here's the little, the little handle part here. And so the way they made the, you know, at least at certain points, you know, in the iron ages, they would make pots through uh, using a potter's wheel. But then the handles, they would have to put, they made them as in a mold and they would have to press them onto uh, the jug or the jar, whatever it is you're making. So when you're, you know, 
excavating and you're finding even a broken piece like this, especially if it's like a handle, I love putting my hands here because you can feel sometimes the where the potter oh, was wow. pressing the handle onto the mm. jar. And to me, that just is like so cool. And sometimes you can even see a thumbprint. Wow. wow. And I am just, I just sit there in awe thinking, who made this? Why did they make it? How did they make it? Who ended up using it? How wow. did they use it? You know, how long did they use it for? Why did they leave it behind? You know, what are the stories behind the artifacts? I love the artifacts, I do. Um, but to me, the story behind the artifact is really, is really cool. And even just finding something little like this, which is really kind of inconsequential to the big, it's not like a big monumental find. It doesn't have an inscription on it. It doesn't, you know, say, you know, David was here, yeah. <laughs> although that would be really cool. Um, but, you know, it's these type of things where I can feel them. And yeah. me, that just is so profound where I am the first person to see this, to touch this in thousands of years. Yeah. Sure. Uh, now, I'm just, how did you, how did you find that thing? That is that's tw 2500 years old or something buried in the ground. Did you get off the plane at Tel Aviv in Israel with the spade and just walk 15 <laughs> paces and start digging? Like where do you where do you find such how a thing? You, how do you choose where to dig? <laughs> you know, I'm going to use this question as a as opportunity to plug oh, one no. of my books <laughs> because um, because of those same questions that I would get all the time. Um, so I edited a volume called The Five-Minute Archaeologist in the Southern Levant, because the Southern Levant is the region ancient Israel is in. And, um, and it's lots of different archaeologists have contribute little chapters. The chapters are like not even probably a thousand words, oh. um, a lot less. And they're all asking questions, answering questions like this. How do you decide where to dig? Who decides where to dig? How do you decide to dig there? How do you dig? Who gets to keep it? You know, what kind of political implications are there and stuff like that? So all sorts of different questions. Um, but no, you can't just get off a plane and start <laughs> digging. But you can volunteer on an excavation in Israel. We've got loads of them. I mean, this last summer we didn't because uh, we weren't allowed to with all, everything. Um, but um, you can, anyone can volunteer on excavation. And these excavations um, are run, directed and run and funded um, by um, universities, both in Israel and the US and in Europe, uh, from all over the world, uh, Australia. Um, and so we've got people from all over the world, scholars from all over the world who are on staff on different excavations and they have a reason for excavating. Like there's a, they have a research series of research questions they're trying to answer and depends on the time period they're interested or the geographical location, you know, so anyone can, whether you have any experience or knowledge 
or background in history or archaeology or Bible or whatever, anyone can volunteer on these excavations. And we find so much pottery because everything was made out of pottery that, you know, we collect it all and then we read it afterwards uh, after it's been properly washed because it's been sitting in the dirt for a really long time. So we wash it, we let it dry, and then the next day we do what we call pottery reading. And we determine people who are experts in ceramics will say, oh, this is, you know, from this time period, and this is from this time period, and this is from this time period. And, and then we keep the indicative pieces, because you're asking me how I got this piece, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want you to think I stole it. <laughs> just right, right. <laughs> this little bit of information. Sure. Um, sure. But we have a big pot we keep certain indicative pieces pieces that have handles or rims or have decoration or something like that if they're broken um and then the pieces that we don't keep we have a big pile of pottery shards you know you can just imagine job sitting on there sure you know, right scratching his boils <laughs> <laughs> but um and then the volunteers can take pieces home so i've got you know a, a big basket of the pottery shards at my office um but i've got a couple little things here so. have you ever been able to put one back together these different shards and reconstruct a vase or something yeah in fact um so i'm on t staff on two sites right now and one of the sites is uh we're on um hiatus because after you dig for a while you have to start you know with all the the lab work you have to start with all the analysis and the writing up and publishing so the site that's on a hiatus right now is called tel halif and that's in southern israel um, and it is a iron age old testament site and um so we have been spending the last several summers um taking the pieces of different uh, of the house because we've been excavating um, a particular house we're doing household archaeology there. So, um, so this house that we've been excavating, um, we found um, the floor. So this this house was destroyed. This whole village, this whole town, uh, it's about ten to twelve acres in size. It had a city wall around it, but it was one of the forty-six towns and villages destroyed by um, Sennacherib in seven hundred one BCE. Wow. Well, that's huge. That's a lot to excavate. 10 to 12 yes, acres. Yes, time of King Hezekiah, of Isaiah the prophet. Um, so the whole town, so the Syrians were really well known for um, setting fire <laughs> to things. So yeah. when they set fire to uh, Halif, as they did to most of their places, like the first, the top floor of the house collapsed onto the first floor of the house. And so that would the rubble from the top floor would seal the first floor. So yeah. everything that those people left behind when they fled, hopefully they fled, um, was is still there. And it's burnt and it's probably in pieces. It is, most of it is in pieces. So when we excavate, we excavate in such a way to where we can try. So like the floor, the first floor of this house we found uh, this one part of the floor, there was a ton of broken storage jars. And so we were able to excavate it in such a way to where we could try to put them back together again. And so we've been doing that for the last several summers is trying to reconstruct 
um, a lot of these vessels. It's really hard, though. I am not Sounds good at really it at all. I, I think I'd be afraid to go volunteer. I'd take my pickaxe and break something valuable. Break something. <laughs> yeah. Now, this I'm sorry, this is a little bit morbid, but when you're, like, if this was a village that was attacked, and have you ever found, like, human remains? Like, they didn't get out of the house in time, and I'm sure that comes up. Sometimes you do. I mean, not so far at Halif, really. Um, it's really unusual to find um, skeletal remains inside a city wall, like because I mean it would have been unhygienic. So if you could, you would, you know, you would, if you would bury them outside, you know, in the family tombs or whatever. But if you're in a moment of crisis like this, you know, no, we don't have like a Pompeii type thing. <laughs> that's unfortunate but um you do find sometimes you do but um it's uncommon um but when you do you have to keep it really like secret yeah. <laughs> because um you could your dick could get you know shut down if it comes out that you have a lot of skeletal remains oh really mm -hmm. Oh, well, I won't press you further on that one. She's <laughs> never seen one. Yeah, she, yeah. So, so no, that you don't see him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one thing we talk about all the time on this podcast are the intellectual virtues, uh, being curious, intellectual humility, open-mindedness, courage mm -hmm. to ask questions. Or yeah, to overturn your beliefs in the face of countervailing evidence. You mentioned earlier, uh, and even in your story of the little of. Um, the indicative piece of shards and which which age they belong in. I imagine there would be disagreement amongst archaeologists as to, you know, what time period this is and what what we can infer from this find. Mm -hmm. How have you seen like these intellectual virtues best played out in your field? How how does that work when you encounter disagreement in your field? How does that get resolved and? Yeah. Do different archaeologists have their pet interpretation that they really want to push, and does does it get nasty? Yeah. It does get oh. nasty sometimes, yeah. Um, a good example of this, which you may have heard of back in the um, early 2000s, was this whole um, chronology debate. Um, so there's this well-known Israeli archaeologist named Israel Finkelstein, and... Um, you know, he was, you know, being brave, trying to put forward new ideas based on the data as he interpreted it. And it was pretty counter to the traditional way of doing things. And um, so, of course, there were people on the traditional side who just got, you know, really upset because it was challenging a lot of the previous way they'd done things and challenging um, that there even was, you know, you know, challenging the historical reliability of the biblical text. And um, so, of course, people took that very... Um, it's really heated, seriously. probably. Yeah. It got really heated. It really did. Uh, it has since um, calmed down, thank goodness. Um, but, yeah, it happens. You know, we all take our work seriously. The problem is when we take ourselves too seriously you know mm. when we're not able to um 
to listen. We all, I think the thing about academics is we like to talk, <laughs> but we're not so good at listening sometimes, myself included, you know. Um, so I think um, it can be hard when we take, you know, our positions, you know, personally, like we hold them so tightly to who we are that when somebody challenges them, uh, we, we can take that pretty serious, you know, personally. And so um, some scholars are, are better at, at that than others. I can think of, for example, um, another Israeli archeologist named Ami Mazar, or Ami Hai, but he goes by Ami Mazar. And he's also one of the more well-known, well-respected archeologists, Israeli archeologists uh, of this time period. And he and you know, Professor Finkelstein are friends. <laughs> they disagreed, but um, they, disagreed politely and professionally and um in fact you know ami you know saw some value in uh israel finkelstein's work and made some modifications to his own ideas so that's a really good example of how it can be done but i think um you know they're just like in any discipline you know we we take it personally and and as opposed to saying okay well how how can i learn from this you know, what is a way that I can, you know, you want to look at the the information, the data and the scholarship and go, okay, I agree with this. I disagree with that. And that's okay. But it's when people get, you know, personal and sometimes you read these reviews and people can be not so nice. It's like, well, let's keep it professional. Don't attack their character or person <laughs> because you disagree with them. So it can um, unfortunately, it can get a little bit nasty. Well, as we kind of wind down, um, I'd like to ask you, what would your advice be to our audience who are largely not archaeologists, uh, nor as far as we know, <laughs> as as we know and are not biblical scholars um, by trade? How can, yeah, what's your advice for them to take? What What should they be gleaning from? the findings of archaeology, how should they relate that to their faith and how they read the Bible? Any words of wisdom for just the co the common folk that won't be on digs and yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much you could say to that. Um, I think one of my, my biggest things that I, I try to encourage people in is, is, is one, don't, you know, it, it, don't be afraid to ask, questions, you know, don't be afraid to do the reading yourself, like, especially when, or, you know, when it's related to the Bible, you know, people think they know what's in the Bible, but they don't often read it themselves. Mm -hmm. They know what's in it based on what they hear in church, um, or maybe, you know, a podcast or something, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they're not doing the reading themselves. Um, and I say to my students all the time, don't take my word for it, read it, you know, and, and think about it for yourself and don't be afraid to ask the questions. And archeology, span I would say, um, don't put so much pressure on archeology span to save the Bible, to save Christianity, because it's not going to. Um, archeologists are not concerned with you know, saving any kind of text. They're just, we're just doing our thing and we're trying to learn as much about ancient Israel and ancient Judah as we can from both the ground 
And then there's people like me who do from the ground and the text. Um, so I think people put a lot of pressure on archaeology as like apologetics and it's yeah. not apologetics yeah. and it's really unfair to um, put that kind of pressure on archaeology and archaeologists because that's not that's not what they're interested in they're not interested in saving um, your faith you know right. they want to just learn as much as they can about ancient Israel and Judah and if it helps your faith fantastic great but don't expect them to do that for you you so, know what i mean yeah so that's yeah. Too harsh no but what what should i do then if i come across in my let's say i do go to read some archaeological paper a finding and i discern that oh no this seems to go against some claim made in scripture oh no what do i do surely you've run into this oh sure yeah all the time and I think part of that is, is because people have a, a very kind of simplified view of what the Bible is too. And I'm not being judgmental or critical here. I'm just saying that when you, within biblical studies, as you guys know, you know, it's, if we take into consideration that these are people, you know, whatever your idea of inspiration is, you know, keep that in, in mind, but that we have people who have been writing these things over this collection of books that we have is a collection of material written and collected and redacted over a very long period of time. And there's multiple voices in it. And the point is not to provide you with every minute detail uh, you're going to have stories about the same event or same person that are going to be different from each other. And that's okay because they're from different perspectives, different motivations. And we tend to put historical standards on the biblical text, modern historical standards on the biblical text that it in the ancient Near Eastern world never would have put upon itself. Mm -hmm. Right. So when we talk about the historical reliability of the Bible, a good way to keep in mind is that, you know, the Bible is historiography. It's, it's you know, what do people choose to include and exclude in what they're documenting? You know, why did they choose to include, you know, what somebody looks like versus what they don't look, you know, or disclude, you know, exclude that? because what they look like is important to the story, right? So there's so much stuff in the biblical text that, you know, is, we're not gonna find in archeology, span you know, it's just because it's very different. And so archeology span and biblical studies and the biblical text, they, while they are related, they're not used to prove or disprove each other. And I think that's a lot of pressure to put both on biblical studies and archaeology is but allow them to do their thing. And, you know, just because we have no historical anchors for, let's say, Abraham, because we don't um, outside the biblical text, that's OK. <laughs> you know, it's not it. That's fine. It's not that it's not, you know, what it's not archaeology or death. Right. Well, just because we don't have it doesn't mean 
we don't have it yet, or it doesn't mean that we haven't found it yet, or it doesn't mean that um, there isn't a greater point to those stories too. So there's just so much to keep in mind. I'm sorry, I'm babbling. No, no, that's really good. I mean, yeah, yeah why I, can't we just I mean, focus there's on- There's a lot of yeah. pressure on both biblical studies and archeology span to make us feel better. Right, there's gotta be more to these stories like let's just pick on Genesis for a second that I could learn or uh, grow spiritually or um, come in contact with some theological truth that's totally apart from as you mentioned earlier finding the ark or yeah. Noah's ark like okay I mean that would be crazy to find something like that but there's more going on in these stories yeah. than um, hoping one day someone digs up these pieces of it um, I think our modern historical standards, you know, we want to, we want things to be like, oh, the date in the text, and we want to find supportive evidence that these people existed. And, and that's just not the way that ancient, ancient people did things. Mm -hmm. And to put our modern historical standards on them is unfair to them, I think. And, you know, but that's okay. Well, where can people learn more about this? How can we find you online? What, what projects are coming up that you'd love to point our audience to, to grow as budding archeologists themselves. <laughs> well, first I always put out an invitation out there that if anyone ever wants to come volunteer on a dig, you're more than welcome to come to mine. I'm currently excavating at a site in Northern Israel called Tel Abel Beit Ma'aka. It is mentioned in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 20. In, with the wise woman of Maka who throws the head of Sheba, the re rebel, over the wall. Wow. Great. That classic tale. Yeah. <laughs> that classic tale, yeah. yeah. Um, we're hoping to excavate this summer, you know, Lord willing. Um, so that's always an open invitation. Um, also, I am um, working on a few projects. I have a couple co-editing projects that are coming out this next year. One is The Hunt for Ancient Israel. It is uh, a volume in honor of my doctoral advisor, Diana Edelman. That will be published with Equinox in, um, the, f in the early spring. Uh, and that's pretty like academic-y, you know, but this other project <laughs> is the TNT Clark Handbook of Food in the Hebrew Bible and Ancient Israel that I'm co-editing. Uh, and that will be published next year sometime too. So if you've ever been interested, and that's like for anybody, it's not super academic-y. Um, I don't know if academic-y is a word, no. but it is now, I suppose. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, anything you've ever wanted to know about, you know, things that they grew, that they raised, that they how they cooked, what they cooked, how we find it in different parts of the Bible and archaeology and all that stuff. So that will be next year. I'm also doing a class for the podcast, The Bible for Normal People on daily life in ancient Israel. And that's going to be um, every Tuesday night in October. So that's coming up in a couple of weeks here. And you can go to uh, their website to find out more. Absolutely. And we'll put all of that in the show notes, all those different opportunities. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for sharing your expertise and you can i can tell over the airwaves that you are passionate about this i'm glad you're out there in the sun digging away uh, and yeah. finding things out for us what was the 
Sorry, just to go over it again. You said Five Minute Archaeologist was the name of the book with all the FAQ. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So my I have a monograph from my PhD dissertation, which is also very academic-y, but it's Food in Ancient Judah. Uh, and then uh, the Five Minute Archaeologist, uh, I think it was published in 2016. You can find that on Amazon. Okay. So okay. the Five Minute Archaeologist in the Southern Levant. Um, and it's it's small. It's um, easy to read. It's and it's not something you have to read from beginning to end. You can kind of jump all over the place. But it, it we really try to answer all those same kind of questions that people generally ask uh, an archaeologist you know those same type of questions that we were talking about today so um and i you know i'm on social media i'm on instagram i'm on facebook i'm on twitter i've got my jessup i you know website you can i'm out there you yeah. yeah well thanks so much and thank you for watching another episode of open to truth uh be sure to like subscribe down below leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast provider we'd love to hear from you and answer any questions or topics that you have uh, live on the podcast. So we'll see you next time. Thanks for watching. Stay curious.